Listen, there has never been a better time to invest in self-storage and there is no better team than ours to show you how to do it because we wrote the book on how to invest in self-storage. Literally, I created the best-selling home study system back in 2007 titled How to Find, Evaluate, Purchase, and Manage Self-Storage Facilities. And since then, we have helped thousands of people launch and scale their self-storage business and have now become the nation's go-to resource for all things self-storage. And that's because we not only talk the talk, we walk the walk day in and day out since 2005 through now two recessions and amassing a 2. 5 million square feet of self-storage, totaling over 15,000 doors nationwide. There is nobody else that has more experience in self-storage that is teaching people how to invest in self-storage than our team. So if you're ready to launch and scale your self-storage business, then go to selfstorageinvesting.com. Click on the events tab to grab your ticket to the upcoming self-storage academy, along with tickets to our virtual academy for those who can't make it or just aren't ready to go live at this time. So that again is selfstorageinvesting.com. Click on the event tab, but do it now as seating is limited. So go do it now. And on behalf of my team, we look forward to seeing you then. Take care. This is the Self Storage Podcast, where we share the knowledge and skills from the industry's leading investors, developers, and operators to help you launch and grow your self-storage business. I'm your host, Scott Myers, and over the past 16 years, we have acquired, developed, converted, and syndicated over 2 million square feet of self-storage nationwide with the help of my incredible team at selfstorageinvesting.com, who has helped thousands of people achieve greatness in self-storage. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Self Storage Podcast. I am your host, Scott Myers, and today's guest is Joe Evangelisti. Now, Joe was once known as the flip king of real estate before he discovered the overlooked profits hiding in this incredible industry we call self-storage. Since then, he's gone from flipping over 100 homes per year to making 10 times more profits from only doing 5 to 10 storage deals per year. And in addition to investing in self-storage, Joe is also an author, host of his own podcast titled The Legacy Blueprint, and CEO of two other seven and eight-figure businesses. So with that, let's give a warm self-storage podcast. Welcome to Joe Evangelisi. Welcome, Joe. Appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Oh, pleasure is all mine. Fantastic. Anytime that we have an opportunity to one professional to another in the industry who is active in it, talk about what's going on in the industry right now. So as you and I were talking and in the short time, very short time that we've known each other, our stories are very similar coming out of the single family or the tenant toilet world. And then you more on the flipping side on the single family, me as a landlord, but recognizing and realizing that commercial is the way to go and then picking this asset class. So you know, if you would, you know, tell us your journey, fill in the gaps from there. Yeah, absolutely. I've always been a student of construction. You know, I grew up in the construction industry. My dad was a drywall contractor. And I remember when I was like four or five years old, walking around the job sites and my parents were divorced. So it was like nights and weekends. Every time I was with my dad, I was in some kind of house under construction and distinctly remember pushing brooms and hanging drywall when I was a little kid. And I just always knew, first of all, my dad was the first entrepreneur in our family. And one of the few entrepreneurs I even knew when I was a kid. And so I always knew I wanted to be like him. He was always kind of my hero. So I assumed one day I would grow up and be a general contractor and build some single family homes, but it's kind of snowballed out out of control from there. And now we're building, you know, hundred thousand square foot facilities. But I had a chance, lucky enough, a chance to get into the military right out of high school and didn't realize I could do what I loved and serve my country at the same time. I actually went into the US Navy Seabees, which is the construction battalions of the Navy. Most people don't even know they exist. And they go everywhere by air, they fly everywhere, and they build stuff all over the world. And I got to do some amazing stuff all over the world for six years and meet some amazing people and really kind of built in me and instilled in me the discipline and the ability to want to create good culture. And we did that for many years, 10, 12 years in the single family space. We scaled up to, you know, as you said earlier, flipping dozens and dozens and dozens. I think our biggest year was close to 100. And I remember at one point, 
uh, sitting there with my COO, now business partner, and saying to him, like, okay, it's the end of the year. We think we're going to hit 100 houses this year. What do you want to do next year? Do you want to do 120? And he looks at me and he's like, I don't ever want to do 100 again. Like, that was the worst year of my life. And we had made money, but it was just so stressful, so transactional. It was like, you know, as you know from being in that world, Scott, it's like you're worried about closings happening, title coming through, mortgage commitments coming through. Is the buyer going to back out after the home inspection? All these just nightmare things. And it constantly was just like ebb and flow and up and chasing our tail, it felt like. And so we finally made that decision right there. Like, I got to find an industry I can scale into. There's more zeros at the end. And it's a more controllable team. You know, back then we had like 45 employees, couldn't keep track of who was on the payroll for what and what problem they solved. And you know, I always say we had a terrible culture, but we didn't have terrible people. We had great people. We just had a lack of organization. It was hard to keep track of everybody. And so I started looking for a commercial sector to get into. I remember having a call with one of my good friends, now mentors, and he had a similar background, kind of like you and I, where he used to build houses in the Hamptons, $10 million houses and restaurants in Manhattan. And at some point in his life, he moved down to the Carolinas and built track homes, hundreds and hundreds of track homes. I'll never forget. He said, Joe, when you build your first self-storage facility, you'll never touch a house again. In fact, you'll hire people to build your own house. Like You're never going back. And man, he wasn't wrong. It's been a labor of love. And yeah, there's been a lot of trials and tribulations, the learning curves along the way. But at the end of the day, it really is not that much more difficult to build the thing that's behind me, this 100,000 square foot track, than it is to build a couple houses. In fact, probably less difficult in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, before we go farther, Joe, I want to thank you for your time in the service. I absolutely 100% enjoy the freedom that I have in this country to do what we do. And no matter what anybody says, I still believe this is the greatest country in the world. So I want to thank you for that. Absolutely. And you're right. You absolutely you realize that after a while in this business, in the real estate business, when you're in that transaction mode, to have to continue to kill what you eat and drag it back to the cave over and over and over again, it doesn't get any more fun. And so your partner slash a GC came to the same realization that my wife did when she said, I'm done. I'm out. I don't know what you, how many you want to do next year. I'm out. You're going to do this with somebody else. That's right. And that was the time when we decided that, yeah, we had to, economies of scale is a real thing. And there's a whole lot of work to send on the front end of a development project that has six zero five zeros behind it or six or seven zeros behind it. Granted, there is more work, but at the end of the day, there is a lot that can be gained by looking at a development, one site, one parcel, but we're just building out a whole heck of a lot more. So hundred percent that is. And to your point, you said uh, your friend who said, or your mentor who said, hey, you'll never build anything else again once you build your first self-storage facility. And I think that came to mind is anybody that we've talked to that's gotten into the self-storage industry, including myself, the one regret we have is why didn't we do this sooner? As soon as I did, I saw the light, you know, we sold everything else out off and got out of the houses, the apartments. I had office buildings, other warehouses, and we did nothing but self-storage after that. And so, all right, enough about the mayor of the business. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about then making that shift and winding down and then transitioning. We've got a whole lot of folks on Storage Nation here that are, maybe they've got a handful of houses, maybe they got a hundred houses, or maybe they've got a flipping operation like you have, and they're making that transition what did that look like from either from a culture standpoint or from a personnel standpoint or all of the above, winding down that business and then deciding who and what processes to take forward into the storage side? So I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the who. It's always been the who will do the how. And I think one of my unique abilities is putting together great teams. So I mean, Scott, the first thing I did was think about like, okay, I don't have any experience in building self-storage. I have very little experience in commercial construction, which I did a long, long time ago before single family. I actually, I skipped where I skipped the part where I left the military and I did two years in big commercial contracts, but I hadn't done it in years and years and years. 
especially self-storage. So the first thing I did was start to track down, okay, who needs to be on the team and what do I need? And ultimately I ran into what is now my chief development officer who had 350 self-storage development sites under his belt. And so he was a big, big asset, a big mentor, still is to this day, a big coach of mine and a mentor of ours to get us across that development side of things. And then of course he made a ton of introductions. So like I always say this storage business, the thing that makes it different than single family is you don't necessarily need a team for single family. Like you need a team, but you don't need experts in all areas. Like a lot of us for flippers reach a point where we walk into a house with a notepad and a pen and like you can put the whole budget together and you can walk out and it's a deal and you're done. Right. That doesn't work in self-storage. You need professionals, you need feasibility guys, you need design teams, you need engineers that are savvy with these type of things. You need banking behind you, right? And then of course brings in the whole syndication play where we do what's called a 3X syndication and which is really opposite of what a traditional syndication is. And so we need the attorney teams and all those advisors. So for me it was about like really starting to situate who needs to be in the right seats in the bus to make this thing go down the road and do what it is that we wanted to do. And we got lucky a lot of ways through introductions of people who had experience um, that really helped us kind of scale quick. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll bite. What is the three excess syndication model? Oh, me? well, yeah, it's nothing crazy. It's essentially the opposite. So when I started this thing out, right, a lot of people do syndications traditionally where they keep 20 or 30% equity and they sell 70, 80% equity to investors. Mm-hmm. I knew right off the bat that there was enough meat on this bone, make it work the complete opposite. So on most of our deals, we keep 70% equity and sell 30% equity mm-hmm. to other investors and then we go get debt. It changes the dynamic of the entire business structure. I mean, you're able to give people equity for mentorship, equity for if you need a KP on the deal, equity if for whatever reason you need design help or construction help or GC. Like, there's just so many ways that mm-hmm. it creates more opportunity to allow people to share in on the deal. You know, and essentially, my buddy Tim Bratz used to say, like, do you want 100% of the grape or 30% of the watermelon? Mm-hmm. I'm happy all day long getting 30% of the watermelon and creating opportunity for my team along the way. Um, and that trickles all the way down to the people who are on our team. They, everyone that works with us on these deals has some piece of that deal. And I think that that really creates more momentum. Yep. Very familiar with uh, Tim Bratz and his model. He and I have uh, been in another mastermind together for years and have talked on and off about comparing notes on our models. And yep. he's obviously doing things well and doing things right. And to your point, Joe, when we look at a syndication, I know there's a lot of syndicators out there that will, promoters that they'll set it at 50-50, they'll already set the splits up front because they feel that either they've groomed their list or they feel that their list will only take 50%. And we all know that the operating agreement and the PPM dictates who has voting rights and everything else. It has nothing to do with anything other than how much money you end up with when you sell or the cash flow. And so we've always modeled ours. We recognize we're in the money business. Mm-hmm. We're a financial services industry that is deploying capital and we're backing those returns by self-storage because it's the great asset class that produces <laughs> those returns. So to your point, they don't have to be so skinny on our end to give the investors what they want. They're looking for yeah. an IRR. And if we're competitive with an IRR and an equity multiple and a preferred return, that could be a 50-50 deal. It could be a 70-30. It could be a 30-70. We don't throw money away just because we feel that our investors have a certain equity split. And to your point, once we got into this, and Tim and I had also talked about this, there's an awful lot of folks that come into learning about multifamily and they want to invest actively. And then they recognize the heavy lift it takes to develop or find a deal, as you and I were just talking about, existing projects out there in the marketplace, and then take on the credit risk and the lease-up risk when, gosh, I can invest with Joe, I can invest with Tim, I can invest with Scott, and I'm going to get a 17%, 18% IRR, an 8-pref, a 10-pref, and a 2x multiple. I'm probably not going to do that well on my first deal. And I can learn along the way and then maybe invest later on. 
And we've been in that position where, and I'm speaking for you as well when I say we, that we teach people, people come to us to learn. And so if they're investing with us and they can earn while they learn, it's been a great business model for us. I don't know if you would echo that as well or what you would add to that. Everything you just said is is spot on. There's so much, I think there's more flexibility in this model. Like you said, whether it's 30, 70, 50, 50, 70, 30, it's the flexibility to have the ability to do these things that we do because of this industry that I haven't recognized in any other industry. I mean, obviously COVID crushed retail and office in a big way. Multifamily is still obviously thriving, but it's super competitive. You've got 150 LOIs going out on a decent deal. I think one of our unique abilities has been not only being the guys that aren't afraid to do ground-up development, but finding these off-market deals and entitling them and actually improving the value of the land with the entitlement and creating these opportunities in MSAs that are underserved. So your wholesaling habits, your flipping habits die hard, right? Being transactional has its place. If you've got a robust pipeline and you can't take them all down, why not? Share that business model if you wouldn't mind. I imagine there's some folks out there that are very interested in that, perhaps looking at doing something of that on their own or even being on the receiving end of that if they're looking to get into a development project. Yeah, no, I mean, right now our appetite for development is to do 10 to 12 deals a year. And I don't really foresee that changing it because these are big deals. Let's face it. I mean, there's plenty to go around. But what has happened is that taking a lot of my business based acumen is where I came from, what I did. And so for 12 years, we always went direct to seller. I bought properties direct from mom and pop or whoever, death, divorce, and whatever have you, direct to the seller we would find. So when he got in the self-storage industry, it was like, well, we're going to find deals. And so we just did it the way we always did it. You know, We went boots on the ground. We went straight to the sellers. We went straight to marketing, trying to find these off-market deals. And we kind of stumbled upon this ability to find really, really good deals because of our background. And what we did was we overfilled the pipeline. Right? I got too many deals in the pipeline. They all make sense. They all underwrite the way I would want to buy them, the way I'd want to syndicate them, the way I'd want to bring investors in. And so they say that adversity is like the mother of innovation, I think is the, is the term. But essentially, we had all this excess of great deals. What am I going to do with them? Well, I'm going to start finding friends to sell them to and maybe JV if they need it or help them along the way raising money or help them along the way with the design team or the construction team or put them in touch with end use operators. And so two things were really born out of that. One is what we call shovel-ready storage, which is our due diligence approved, been through entitlements, been through design, environmental We've checked for the endangered species and the, and the frogs and the birds. And this is a deal that's ready to go. And we sell them directly to other developers. And then secondly, we created what we call the storage syndicate, which is basically a mastermind of all walks of life of designers, contractors, lenders, subcontractors that want to be on the sites and bird dogs that are finding these deals. We kind of put them all under one umbrella so that they can do deals together. It goes back to that abundance mindset you were talking about before mm-hmm. we started recording. So... The path is very, very similar in that we don't ever want a deal to go by the wayside. And we, I don't know about how you set your cap, but we're right in that same realm. We do about 10 to 12 deals per year. And for us, that just feels right. I never set out to have a massive organization. I don't want to lead that many people because I don't have the ability to. And also for our investors, there are investment partners and they invest with us in projects over and over again. And I feel like I just can't give that much attention to a project to lead a staff and to more partners than 10 to 12 projects would allow. So we kind of cap that. And and so for that same reason, we do joint ventures, we do partnerships, we sold a couple of projects off, not necessarily development projects, but existing facilities because we have our marketing machine is cranked up. And yeah, we don't want anything to fall off the desk and just let it go to somebody else outside of our community. So we've done the same thing. In that instance, once again, looking at opportunity, and that's why we got good at raising private equity too, because the ability to do more deals. 
And so if you have the ability to do so without letting anything else go by the wayside, as a good friend of mine says, it's just a math problem. You get too many deals. Well, okay, there's a hundred ways from Sunday of putting this together. How much of my time am I willing to dedicate to this? And if it's truly just to hand it off, then so be it. But if I bring perhaps the credit or if I bring the private equity partner with a JV, we'll do a JV with a, a GC to come in and build it. If somebody else wants to raise the equity, great, I'll take a small piece of this or whatever that looks like. But we've recognized that we don't have to own the whole thing and we don't have to wholesale it. There's many ways in between that we can still be involved and also many areas and many folks that we can work with that need some of the resources that we have. And we just begin to piece it together and build it. And then we create the partnership and the percentages. And as long as it's equitable and everybody's happy, we move on down the path and we've kept another deal in the community without letting it go to whomever. And um, you're not the bad guy, you're the competition, but we don't want it to go to the competition. Yeah. True. That is exactly how we feel. I mean, I think that's, again, one of the benefits to doing these type of deals is that you can carve out equity. It's not like you can do that in a single family flip where there's $30,000 in profit and everyone gets 5%. It just doesn't make any sense. But when you have a deal like this, the team deserves to get paid. And as like you said, as long as it's equitable and everybody's happy with what they're getting out of it, then nine times out of 10, it's going to work out great. So on the shovel ready side, once you build this skill set and you become adept at working with cities and working with all along, starting with the brokers, with the sellers, you know what to say, you know how to get the land under contract, timelines, what it takes to get it across the finish line and purchased. And then to get it entitled, that's a completely different skill set and a timeline and story that involves transactional funding typically to hold that land until you get the completely modeled out project up together. And then going out to either secondary funding, syndication, and then development. Tell me, are you looking at just projects that are nearby because you know those municipalities and you have a relationship with them that you thought, hey, they know us, we know them, we can get this done a little bit better than anybody else and put it out to market? Or is this a skill set that you've taken nationwide? So if you find a good piece of dirt that makes sense, that your team can still go in there, build those relationships to get these things entitled and out to market in a quick time frame to another developer. What does that look like? Yeah, it started out the first way, right? It started out mm-hmm. where it was it was New Jersey and it was local municipalities and it's who do we have to shake hands with? Who do we have to get in front of? But it very quickly became multiple states. And now we're, we're probably in 25, 30 states at this point, really looking at what we consider it's all the Southern states, Southeast, Southwest, and getting good at dealing with each individual municipality. The good thing is, again, our network of our design team and our approval team, these guys have been doing deals all over the country for decades. So they have a lot of connections in, in different municipalities, but they also have have it really tightened up their process for what has to happen to get the approval. Who do we have to know to get the approval? What is the connection that has been made there? What is the township looking for? In certain instances, we hire planners to tell the story if we think that's going to be necessary to get us across the finish line. But knock on wood, we've been pretty successful at it so far. So Tell me, we are at, of course, I don't know about yourself, but around here, we've been saying we're six months away from a recession and we've been saying it for the past four years now, maybe five. (laughs) But now I think we're finally there. We're heading into an interest rate increasing environment and the indices are crossing. The yield curve is looking dramatically different. Unemployment, everything is pointing to 2022 being time where somebody finally says we're in a recession, if not being in it right now at the time of recording. So With interest rates going up, there's projects that are going to be pressed. They're going to be squeezed for profits from a timing standpoint. Some of the funding, if we have these more aggressive interest rate hikes, some of these lenders are just going to pucker up and they're going to stop until the dust settles a little bit. And what we've been not hoping for, but banking on is uh, the fact that we know, we saw what happened in the last recession. We know that when the music stops, you know, everybody's scrambling for chairs and we wanted to have the cash available to be able to 
pick up some of these abandoned development projects or self-storage facilities that weren't able to be refinanced because it used to be at a 90% LTV and now banks were only refinancing at 65 or 70 in the environment that we're in. Tell me the timing and what does that look like for your organization, your model, at least focusing on the model of these shovel-ready projects. Does that present, do you think, an opportunity for you to be able to pick up more of these? And will you struggle to then sell them to somebody else? Or is just the sheer fact that you're going to sell them at one price to somebody else instead of in the middle going to kind of shield you from any of that risk? And I know there's a lot of questions in there. A lot of questions uh, there. (laughs) Sorry, you following me? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm following you. I mean, first of all, I'd like to think that I was born into a recession, right? My first deal in single family was in 2007. So I was about four deals deep when the earth came to a crumble and the industry got pulled out from underneath of us. So I think being the ability to course correct and overcome obstacles, is just what we do. I mean, that's what you do in construction every single day, you're solving problems. So I think that you have to be nimble. And you have to be able to make quick decisions and you have to have a really great supportive team. And I think that's one of the things that we have at our disposal is, is the resources to make things happen. You know, we have to remember when a recession happens, money doesn't disappear. It just moves from one hand to another. It's not like the money just evaporates because we're in a recession. Now, inflation is different. Money's worth less than it was 12 months ago, but that's why you're in real estate. Things may get tougher before they get easier, but at the end of the day, our model is built. We have a pipeline of other developers that want to do business with us. We have great connections and not only with our investors, but with our banking partners. So yeah, things could get tough. You have to be ready to course correct. You have to be ready to mm-hmm. overcome obstacles when they get put in front of you. That's what we do as a, for a living. That's what, if you're a business owner, that's your job. Yeah. Every day we get up and resolve conflict and we get uh, compensated for it. If we do it well, that, that's it at the end of the day. And we came through, this will be my third recession. And so you coming in in 2007, you've seen what happened. And all, all I could say in 2008 and nine is, wow, I wish I had more lending relationships and I wish I had access to more Absolutely. private equity to be able to, again, we don't ever want to take advantage of people. And the pandemic is nothing that we wish for, neither is a recession, but we know in, in the self-storage industry, we benefit from, from chaos and trauma and transition in people's lives. And so we have been preparing for this this time when this next recession hits and we do have those good lending relationships and private equity behind us. And so it's all about folks. Um, if you hear anything on this conversation with Joe, it's about putting yourself into a position where you're opportunistic so that you can look at the landscape and see what everything looks like, do the math, do the underwriting. And if it makes sense, it does. And if not, then you have the ability to walk away. Well, you know, if I could add to that, Scott, I think you have to be smart about your deals. Like you said, there's some people out there, 90% leverage. We would never even consider getting to that level. So I think it is tough when it comes to, you know, you have to make smart business decisions in order to keep mm-hmm. yourself insulated against tough times. Tough times are absolutely guaranteed to happen, whether it's a recession or some other disaster that could possibly happen to you. So you have to be prepared for that either way. So as we head into the balance of 2022, does the business model change at all, Joe? What are you doing to either prepare or steady as she goes, batten down the hatches or optimistic or are you peeling back a little bit? Tell us your approach. Again, I'm optimistic. I don't think there's going to be a shortage of developers. I think a lot of people are going to shrink up a little bit, but the industry is not going to come to a halt. I mean, it might be a little softer than it was in the last couple of years, us getting into it. But again, the buy side is going to get better. We're going to be able to negotiate better deals. It might be an opportunity for us to create more in that regard. And again, the thing I love about this is we're not trying to do 200 deals a year or 100 deals a year. This is something that's not as transactional as the industry I came from. And the numbers are quite a bit bigger. So I think we're going to be fine. If we have to you know, shrink our margins a little bit, we'll do that. But we're going to continue to do what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Joe, as we wrap up here, I know that, as you mentioned, you have a way to be able to work with folks to come alongside of you to kind of earn while they learn. It's very similar to what we've been doing for a number of years as well. You got a little different twist on it. So tell us 
how people get in touch with you if they want to follow you, invest with you, or invest alongside of you. You do quite a bit. So uh, how do folks get in touch with you? Yeah, there's really two ways. They can go to storagesyndicate.com, but also they can text the number if I can read it off to you, Scott. It's uh, mm-hmm. 856-481-7795. If they text mm-hmm. the word storage to 856-481-7795, I actually send them a free masterclass on, on you know exactly what we're working on and how they could potentially make the transition if they're not already in storage or mm-hmm. scale up their existing storage, storage business. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we will definitely include that in the show notes. So Joe, with that, any books that you're reading recently or something that you, a book that you've gifted the most to anyone that you may want to share a title to for Storage Nation out there to maybe get them along the right path, either in storage or just in business in general or anything else for that matter? Yeah, no, recently I've been gifting a lot. To, well, not my own book. I have a couple of different books that I send out. Multiplicity is one of my favorites. But Dan Sullivan, man, he's been really hitting it hard in the last couple of years. He's got a mm-hmm. co-author. I can't think of the name of the guy that writes the books with him, but Who Not How has been yeah. very popular in our circles. And Dan's coming out with a, I heard a new one this summer. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what, that, what that's all about. Yep. And my other desk, I would, Who Not How is at the top right now and now going through as uh, we are scaling up and adding folks. And I want to make sure that yeah, I didn't miss anything. I'm a big fan of Dan Sullivan. I went through Strategic Coach years ago. For me, it was more of an entrepreneur intervention. Kind of had to. <laughs> Scheduling the vacation days and getting everything in line. But you're right. That guy just gets better with age. He's been putting out some really amazing stuff recently. All right, Joe, once again, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Looking forward to more conversations and perhaps even some collaboration at some point, but I appreciate you taking out time today to share your business model, your experience with Storage Nation out there. So until we see you again, take care and we'll catch you on the flip side. Hey gang, wait three things before you leave. First, don't forget to subscribe to the Self Storage Podcast and turn on your notifications so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review if you like the show. Second, be sure to share your favorite episodes and more via Instagram and don't forget to tag us. And lastly, head to the links in the show description and hit the follow and subscribe button on Twitter and Facebook to get a front row seat as we grow and scale our business and bring you along with us. Take care.